yeah, we've each had to let go of things in our life. Uh, I, w I was making some uh, cookies the other night, and when you blend things together, uh, they don't end up looking like what they started with. You blend them and you heat them and you work with them and, and they come out different, but it's something unique there and that's what we end up becoming is something unique from what we were, uh, but there are times that we had to lay things down. Um, I laid down a lot of sports stuff. I loved <laughs> running and playing tennis and playing basketball and all kinds of stuff. And um, I never asked him to. <laughs> I just, I just, that took me away from this lady. And I didn't want anything to take me away from this lady. So uh, I fight hard for that. That's a great picture. I don't feel like I even need to preach. We'll just pray and uh, get out of here early. But uh, hey, we do want to welcome you today. My name is Paul Mumwa. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you've got a Bible with you, uh, open it to the Old Testament book, the Song of Songs, uh, chapter three. Uh, if you want to follow along with the, one of the Bibles uh, around the room on the floor, it'll be page 469. You know, one of the greatest privileges I have as a pastor is officiating wedding ceremonies. And uh, wedding ceremonies are, are very special. Uh, you know, there's always a, a unique kind of energy that's present on a wedding day. And it's one of those rare occasions, really, when all of the people uh, that a couple loves gather together in one place at the same time. And so it really is a, a, an excellent, a, a special event. And for Christians, it's a sacred moment. Uh, we know and we believe where two lives are joined together uh, with God as the most important witness uh, of it all. I was thinking back on some of the weddings that I performed uh, this past week. And I think it's safe to say that I've performed uh, around seven five weddings uh, in 16 years of ministry and all sorts of weddings. I mean, weddings, plenty of weddings for younger couples, but some weddings for older couples. Uh, I've performed weddings in all seasons, in the winter, in the spring, in the summer, in the fall. I've done weddings in churches. I've done weddings in banquet halls. There have been weddings at the park. There have been weddings on the beach and uh, big weddings, extravagant weddings, and uh, small and simple weddings too. And I've had some memorable wedding experiences along the way. For example, uh, one time I was marrying this couple in Michigan. Michigan. And uh, it was a traditional sanctuary uh, with a really tall stage. And uh, the couple was with me up on this elevated stage. They exchanged their vows. They exchanged rings. And then they kissed. And they knew then when I turned them around and pronounced them as husband and wife and the music started that that was their cue to start down these five or six steps from this elevated stage. Well, wouldn't you know it, the moment the bride took her first step, her heel snapped, and you guessed it, she went head first from this top stage all the way down these stairs onto the floor. Everyone gasped at the moment. The groom, who had let go of her hand and was still standing at the top of the stage, turned and looked at me, and I just kind of gave him this look. It's like, this is on you, dude. Like, this is, <laughs> this is not my responsibility, all right? You are going to own this one uh, all the way. And uh, as far as I know, they're still happily married uh, today. There was another wedding that 
I was a part of. I was marrying a, a young couple in a very old church in the historical district of downtown Louisville. And uh, we didn't realize it, but then on Saturday afternoons, there were typically uh, tour buses that would pass through uh, this particular neighborhood. And so we were halfway uh, through our ceremony uh, on this particular day. And this bus that was coming by, uh, unbeknownst to us, had a tour guide that was using a microphone system. And somehow the frequency of this tour bus microphone system overran our frequency in the ceremony. And so instead of the couple and uh, the family and the friends listening to me, we got to listen for about two to three minutes as this tour guide described the building and the history of this particular neighborhood. And so we all just stood there and laughed and uh, just waited for them to pass on by. And so lots of good memories and good stories. Maybe you've been a part of some of those two. Weddings are fun. Uh, They're fun for all sorts of reasons. The wedding day uh, is a special day. But what I always tell a couple is that as special and as memorable as that day is, the event itself is temporary. Uh, The event is temporary. It's one day. In fact, what I'll usually say to a couple is something like this. Most couples spend so much time and so much money and so much effort on planning their wedding day and not enough time in preparing for and praying for uh, their marriage. I I, I was thinking even this week, you know, why, why do we even do wedding ceremonies? Uh, where, where does that come from? What is it about the wedding ceremony that causes us to, to put on our best clothes, to gather our family and friends together, uh, to throw a party to celebrate this union? Well, uh, we're going to look at that today as we continue in week three of this series called Relationship Goals. We're, we're spending five weeks in this Old Testament book, The Song of Songs. And today, I want to take a look at the wedding ceremony that's described here in chapter three, uh, beginning verse six. And then I want to talk to you about the important aspect of community community and accountability uh, in this particular story. Now, let me say this. There's a lot. Uh, there's, uh, excuse me. There is not a lot in the Song of Songs uh, regarding the wedding of this couple that we've been reading about together. The author spends way more time talking about the honeymoon, which we'll cover next week. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why we know this book was written by a man. A few verses about the wedding, a whole chapter uh, about the honeymoon. Again, so come back next week. Don't miss that. But uh, let's look at the wedding itself for just a moment. Song of Songs, chapter 3, starting in verse 6. And I want to hear these words from the perspective of the woman. She's, she's narrating here, all right? She's writing, she's speaking, all right? And, and so let's hear these words from her. She says this. She says, who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. And I want you to just pay attention to what's happening here. She, she sees how Solomon is coming up from out of the wilderness. He's led by a column of smoke. And just like God led his children out of the wilderness in the book of Exodus, the symbolism here points to God leading these two. All right, he's leading them into marriage together. And then she continues, verse seven, she says, look at Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart 
rejoice. And so here comes King Solomon, uh, as is being described, wearing the crown his mommy put on his head, all right? And, and he's got quite an entourage with him. If you, if you see there, he's got 60 warriors around him, 60 groomsmen, and they'd have been matched up with 60 bridesmaids on, on her side. And I've been a part of some big weddings, but nothing quite like this. And so it's an extravagant event. Now, wedding traditions have changed a little bit over 3,000 years, but one thing that hasn't changed is that weddings are intended to be a community event, all right, as we see here. And and so we see this in the Song of Songs, that this wedding is large. Uh, It's a well-attended event, but whether it's large or small, the one thing that most weddings have in common is a couple standing front and center before family and friends. And have you ever thought about the significance of what that represents. The couple standing front and center, all these witnesses, and the couple is making a promise together to each other. And what do they promise? That no matter what happens, I promise I will love you, I will honor you and cherish you and respect you no matter what. And here's what the bride and groom are essentially saying. They're saying, you know, I I can't promise, you know, how I'm going to feel each day. I I can't promise how you're going to behave through this relationship. I don't know what life circumstances are going to come at us, whether we'll have more success in our life or more failure, more sickness or health, more joy or sadness. But regardless of all of that, I am promising you today in front of our family and friends that I'm going to love you and I'm going to stay with you as long as we both shall live. Because the truth is that when the cake's all gone and the honeymoon's all over and you're back to work, what you're left with is two people trying to build a life together, all right? Two people beginning in this new life with one another. I think about uh, for both Jenny and I, uh, we were just out of college, really, and uh, we were married. We were both working, and in that first year of marriage, man, it was it was tough. It was it was fun. I used to like to say that we 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 played hard and we fought hard. All right, in that first year, maybe those first couple of years of marriage, and especially in that first year, I mean, I was working as an admissions counselor, which required quite a bit of travel. Jenny, as a nurse, was working the third shift at a hospital. I mean, it literally was. I mean, she'd pull into the driveway at seven in the morning. I'd get out of bed, she'd get right in bed, and I'd get her up when I came home from work that day. I mean, man, if you live a life like that, all right, no matter how many years you've been married, you know how challenging that can be to be on different schedules. Add to that a newly married couple. Those those first couple of years especially uh, were, were challenging. Uh, marriage is hard, you know. Marriage can be, can be difficult all the way through. Mar- One woman said it like this. She was asked the key to staying married to her husband so long. Her response was, well, the main reason is that neither of us have died yet, all right? That's, that's how we've been able to make it this long. We know that marriage is hard, and we know that, well, we know that marriages fail. And uh, for most of us in the room, I mean, we've seen a marriage fail. And if not uh, one where you are part of, then certainly one that you were close to. And so I've titled this marriage today, or this message today, A Picture of Marriage. But maybe what we need to call this marriage is, you know, how to make marriage great again. You know, how, how do we make marriage great again? Wouldn't that be appropriate, right? Doesn't that, doesn't that seem appropriate considering our times today? But, but here's what I mean by that. As Christians, we think we know a lot about what the institution of marriage looks like. And what happens is, is that when anyone, especially the government, passes laws regarding marriage, we say that it weakens the institution of marriage, right? And, and there may be some truth to that. Maybe so. But, but, the, but the truth is, the greater truth is that the one thing that weakens the institution of marriage more than anything is weak marriages. And if you think about it, if Christians, if we as followers of Christ could get marriage right, think about the impact that we could have on the world today. 
Think about the people that would look to the church, that, that would look to the marriages of those in the church and see stronger, more loving, lasting marriages, maybe than any other marriages in the world. I mean, wouldn't that be a symbol for those who don't follow Christ that there must be something to following Jesus, all right? And something about bringing your marriage unto the leadership of Christ. And so the question we've got to ask is, how do we make marriage great again, specifically if you're married, how can you make your marriage the very best that it can be? Or if you're not married, you know, and statistically, there's a really good chance that you might be someday. How can you make that marriage the best that it can be? So let's look a little closer at this passage here in Song of Songs, chapter three, and we'll borrow from a few others in different places in the Bible. But I want you to see three ways that I think we can really improve in marriage or three ways to make marriage great again. I wanna use three words for you today in your notes if you're following along. The first word that I wanna focus on is the word remember, all right? And I wanna challenge you. I wanna challenge us to think about, uh, to, to remember the vows that you made or the vows that you will make if, if you're close to marriage. Uh, it's safe to say that I didn't attend your wedding. Uh, maybe, maybe that uh, wouldn't be true for some of you, but I bet that at your wedding, you made some vows to one another. And what you promised was some version of, you know, I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. I, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And if you're married, you probably said that in front of your family and in front of your friends. I mean, they were there. They heard you. And so you said that not just to the person that you married, but you promised your whole community. And for Solomon, it was 60 of his best friends, all right, 60 of his mighty warriors. I mean, these were the guys that had the means and the ability to hold him accountable if he ever uh, dared go back on that promise. And well, do, you've got, do you have people like that in your life right now? Uh, do you have friends? Do you have a community that holds you uh, to that same level of accountability? You know, one of the cool things that I get to be a part of uh, at most every wedding ceremony that I help perform is a time of prayer, uh, first with the groom and his groomsmen, and then the bride and her bridesmaids, her bridal party. And every once in a while, it's a little awkward uh, if, like, I initiate the prayer time and these friends really aren't used to praying for one another. But once in a while, it's a really special time. And I, I get to be there firsthand and watch closely as the, the groomsmen lay their hands, you know, on their friend, on their close friend, their best friend, this groom, and they pray for him. And when you think about it, these are the men, all right, these groomsmen that have committed to praying and supporting uh, this man, praying and supporting this couple. These are the guys that are ready to hold them accountable. They're going to hear him or they're going to hear her make the promise until death do we part? And so here's a, here's a challenge, a wild eye idea for some of you, especially as we enter into this wedding season. Uh, don't overlook the importance of standing with your friend, you know, whether that be the groom or the bride on their wedding day. Be that support for them. Uh, be that person that's going to pray for them starting now and all the way through their marriage. You know, be a friend that's going to hold your friends accountable in their marriage and to one another. And uh, brides and grooms, as you plan for your day, choose friends that you trust. Uh, choose people that are going to pray for you and hold you uh, accountable. That's what Solomon is doing here. I mean, he didn't just pick, you know, his childhood friends or his frat buddies, all right? He picked 60 mighty warriors, 60 Navy SEALs, all right? Uh, men who could hunt him down and take him out in a moment's notice uh, if needed. These were men, again, who were going to hold him accountable to his promises to make sure that he kept his words. Because uh, if you're close to marriage or are close to being married, uh, or if you're in marriage right now, don't, don't you want to be known as someone who, who keeps their word? 
to, to keep a promise like this? I mean, don't, want, don't, don't you want others or, or especially your kids to see you as someone with integrity? Uh, people with integrity say what they mean and mean what they say. And if you're married right now and, and if you're in a tough spot or a tough season, maybe what you need to do is to go back to your wedding day and to reflect on your own vows and to remember the promises that you made, that I, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. But I know maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, Paul, but you don't understand the story. You don't understand my life or the circumstances right now. You don't understand the way that he or she treats me. Listen, I get it, all right? I, I know it's hard, but listen, we're all sinners, and we're all in need of the grace of Christ. And as he offers his unconditional love to you and me over and over again, he asks us to do the same uh, in our marriages too. And so right now in your marriage, he, he's not asking you to do anything that he's not already done for you and that he won't do for me. And so we continually extend grace as grace has been extended to us. Now, certainly there are exceptions, all right? And no one should ever tolerate an abusive or, or a dangerous marriage. I, I understand that some people leave and they have no intention of ever coming back. And, and I'll say this, if you're in a position like that, if you're in a difficult position right now, uh, you need to get help. And, and Genesis would love to be a church that helps you in seeking out that help. But unless that's the case, we extend grace to our spouse and we remember the vows that we made to one another. I, I was thinking uh, yesterday about uh, my own wedding and I remembered a story that the pastor uh, shared with both Jenny and I before we uh, shared our vows with one another. And I wanted to share that story with you today. And uh, it describes a couple who had made a commitment that they would put on their wedding clothes on every wedding anniversary and have their picture taken in the living room of their house. And they planned to do this all throughout their life together and to collect the photographs in a single album. So um, I, I remember our pastor reading it for us. He says, there they are on their fifth anniversary, coming down to the living room for their annual picture. She is in her white gown and he is in a three-piece suit and formal tie. They're waiting for their next door neighbor who has gone to get some new batteries for the flash. The first four years they hired a professional photographer, but this has not been a good year for them financially. The husband lost his job. The wife is only able to get part-time employment and their second child is having medical problems. Finally, their neighbor arrives. He positions them in front of the fireplace and suggests they hold hands the way they did for their vows. And while their friend fidgets with the focus, the wife notices that the stuffing is coming out of the sofa and she wishes they had money to redo it. The husband sees their daughter's broken doll and thinks of the one he saw in a store window but could not afford. Flash. That's picture number one, says their friend. And while he steps back for another angle, the wife says to her husband, do you remember our vows? We memorize them. They think for a minute and then slowly repeat together, I promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your faithful and loving wife, husband. The two words sound at once, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, poor. The word bursts like the flash on their friend's camera and highlights the stack of bills on the table beneath the phone and the calendar marked with doctor's appointments they cannot afford. A look, a look leaps between them, we promised. The camera flashes again, That'll be a good one, says their friend. 
Next, I picture the couple 10 years later, things are much better for them financially. The husband has a good job. The wife went back to school and has just taken an excellent position. The colonial love seats by the fireplace have all been recovered, and each of the children has a 10-speed bicycle in the garage. I think the story's a little dated. Uh, But the husband and wife have thrown acid words at each other. The second child, even after all the trips to the doctor, is in trouble. Each partner has said to the other, if you weren't so occupied with your job and could give some time to the family, then things would be different. On their 15th anniversary, they come home and they say they're too tired to get into the wedding clothes. Then they remember the photographer is coming in 20 minutes and has probably already left the studio and will charge them for the visit no matter what. So they trek up to the attic, throw themselves into the musty clothes, discovering that they have to suck in to get the zipper shut. The doorbell rings. The photographer comes in and takes control. Come on now, hold hands, a smile for the camera. And while the photographer clicks away, they get lost in the moment and repeat the vow, I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful wife for better, for worse, worse. Flashes as brightly as poorer did 10 years before. And again, the look leaps between them, we promised. Finally, I picture their 47th anniversary. They do not know whether they'll make it to their 50th. He's had two heart attacks and her hands are crooked with arthritis Their granddaughter, herself engaged, is upstairs bringing down the old clothes. The dress has yellowed, and when the wife puts it on, she tears a seam. The husband can't get his pants on, but if the picture is from the waist up and he buttons his coat, it'll be all right. But he takes his wife's hands, her knuckles swollen and knobby, and out of their faltering bodies arise in a whisper the sacred pledge, I do covenant before God and these witnesses to be your faithful and loving wife, husband, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. In sickness, until death. Words that had easily slipped out of their mouths on their wedding day are now heavy with meaning. I've got to go upstairs for more film, says the granddaughter, but they're not listening. And looking into each other's eyes, they see something more beautiful than the prize pictures in their anniversary album, but instead the grace and the glory of a promise kept. Step one to making marriage great is to remember what we promised. Number two is uh, the word submit. Number one is remember the second word is submit, that in order to love your spouse, as the Bible commands, husbands and wives, we've got to practice mutual submission in marriage. Ephesians 5 probably gives the most complete And at the same time, the most controversial instructions to Christian husbands and wives. And it starts with a simple command. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the apostle Paul writes to husband and wives. He says, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Say that with me if you would. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like just like Jesus did, all right? He submitted to the will of his father when he came to this earth, when he gave up his life for us. We're called to do the same as followers of Jesus Christ, as husbands and wives in life and in marriage. Now, in the Greek, this word submission was a, u- a word used to describe what a soldier would do uh, for his or her officer, that they would submit to the officer and even really Really, their fellow soldiers for the sake of the whole, uh, for the sake of unity, and for the sake and the health of the team. The same is true in marriage. 
Uh, husband and wife submit to one another. Marriage is not some 50-50 arrangement, all right, where we exchange goods and services to uphold the deal, but it's a 100-100 covenant that I bring all I am to the marriage, all right? Jenny brings all that she is to our marriage, and we submit to one another for the sake of our marriage. We make every effort in our marriage out of reverence for Christ, all right, to submit to one another. But let's be honest. All right, submission in marriage, it doesn't come easily. It's not natural for us. Uh, when you think about it, it really cuts against the grain of our flesh because submission requires humility. It, it, it leans even in greater ways on the grace of God at work in us and for each other. But, but what happens is, is that when we start living out this way, when we start performing and demonstrating submission in our marriages the way that God intended it to be, well, the results can be life-changing. And great marriages occur when the husband and wife are both committed to mutual submission. And this just means that they're putting each other's needs first. They're, they're putting the other's needs before their own. Uh, before their own. It's this, uh, you go first. No, you go first, uh, really sort of an attitude. My wife describes submission like this. She said, imagine two people hand in hand coming to a narrow doorway together. Somebody has to go first. Somebody has to go second. Someone has to step back in that moment. That's submission. It's not a self-deprecating sort of an action. It's a, it's a kind of love that says, I will set aside my own interests so that I can serve you to the very best of my ability. Paul says we are to submit to one another, husbands and wives, out of reverence for Christ. Then in verse 22, he gets very specific for wives for the moment, and then he's going to talk to the men. Uh, verse 22, he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, of course, this is where it gets a little controversial, all right, especially in the day and age that we live in today. And many like to read this and think, okay, a wife submitting to her husband, huh? Like, that's really the point. But I want you to try and understand what this says by noticing what it doesn't say, all right? It doesn't say the wife stays home. It doesn't say that she has kids and takes care of the house. It doesn't say that she makes less or that she has any less rights or say in the home, all right? We, we already saw in verse 21 how Scripture commands both husbands and wives to submit to one another. Now, unfortunately, some have manipulated this verse over the years, and even so-called Christian men in homes have manipulated this, this passage and what it really means. But let's throw some more fuel on the fire. What about the husband being the head here, as Paul describes? What's that mean? Is he, is he in charge now or something? Is he like the dictator of the house? Well, it doesn't say that either. It simply means that the Bible gives special appointment to the husband in the relationship, a plan whereby the husband is designated by God as a spiritual leader in the home. Now get this, and requires from him an even higher standard, I think an even greater level of accountability when we stand before God one day. And so Paul writes in verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. As what? And please don't miss this. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you know what Christ did for us? He went to the cross, all right, and they slashed his side and they put nails through his hands and his feet and he died and he died a horrible death for you and me. And Paul says, you want to get your picture in mind of what this sort of leadership looks like that I'm talking about? Look to Jesus. 
He's the perfect model and example here. He gave himself up her for, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He says this, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, this passage also says that husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. And maybe some of you would men say, well, I don't really love my body. All right. But, uh, but I know this, uh, you're sensitive to its every need. All right. And you know, when you're hungry and you eat and you know, when you're tired and so you sleep. And so you're so tuned in, we are so tuned into the needs of our body. And what I think Paul is saying is that you and I, we should be as sensitive to our body's needs. All right. Even more sensitive and responsive to our wives' needs. And and men, this is an area where we failed, all right? And and I failed and and many men before us and and maybe some of the men that you look to as model and examples. I mean, maybe you'd look to your dad and you would say, you know, my dad was a horrible example of this. We can do better. And as Christians, we need to be the very best men and husbands at loving and serving our wives. We need to be a model for submission in this world today and to lead well. And we need to lead with strength and we need to lead with courage and we need to lead with respect and we need to lead with admiration. We see a little bit of this represented here by Solomon's carriage as it's described uh, in verse nine. It says, King Solomon made for himself this carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. It's posts he made of silver. It's base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with, with purple. It's interior inlaid uh, with love. The, the guy's a manly man, all right? The, he made his own car, all right? You know, for the wedding, if you think about it. And, and it's strong, and the wood is from these majestic trees that Lebanon was known for, and they're silver and gold. I mean, the idea here is that the carriage is strong, yet gentle at the same time. It's interior inlaid with love. The point is this Solomon says to his bride, I'll hold nothing back for you. You're, you're going to get the very best that I am, that all I have is yours. Now, men, that's how we're called to lead uh, in our homes and in our marriage, strong on the outside, but tender and gentle with your wife. And here's why I think this is so important. You know, the Bible continually talks about how the root of sin facing our love relationships today in so many occasions is the passivity of men, that we can be so passive at times. I mean, think about Noah slumped over in drunkenness after the flood and Abraham lying about Sarah being his sister or Adam and Eve in the garden. And Eve takes a bite of the forbidden fruit and scripture says that Adam is right there with her, just watching her stumble. So many of our marriage problems today, I I believe, stem from a man failing to submit, failing to step into this humble leadership role that God has called us to in marriage. Now, I know the opposite side of it that some of you may think, well, you know, but the problem is that some men are just way too strong, way too arrogant, too negative uh, in marriage. And there may be situations where that is true, where a man manipulates or a man even gets rough with his wife to get what he wants. And I'll just say that's shameful. And a man like that needs 60 mighty warriors to take him behind the shed and open up a can on him, all right? You know, to kind of teach him a a lesson of what biblical manhood really looks like because there's no excuse for that. And it's cowardly. And that's not what Paul's getting here. That's not the, the example that he's pointing to. But Paul writes, husbands, you love your wives as Jesus loved the church. And again, what did he do for the church? He was crucified and he gave up his life for us. And that's the same level of commitment and submission that we are called to as men. And for those of you that are men that are sitting here today, those of you that are married that would say, you know what, why should I though? She doesn't love me. She doesn't submit to me. 
It doesn't matter. There's no exception here uh, in this command. You submit to her anyways. You love her. You submit to her. And you love her as the Lord has loved you. And ladies, if you think, well, I don't have to submit to him because he doesn't love me well or he's not leading well in our home right now. Hey, I realize how challenging that may be, but it doesn't matter. These words are timeless for us. You love him and you submit to him as the Lord has loved you. And one thing that I recommend to any couple, any couple that's in a difficult place in their marriage is Christ-centered counseling together, professional counseling, or something like a great uh, marriage course or retreat. Uh, Something like that could save your marriage. Uh, Something like that could be used to get your marriage back on track. I know many stories, even people right here at Genesis that have been through similar experiences and and have really grown, have really kind of come into a new day because of experiences like these. And so would you, if you're in a difficult place right now, consider it an investment of of time and resources, you know, again, something that can make your marriage great again or make it great for the first time. And I'd love to share some of these resources with you, again, whether it be counseling or marriage retreats, or I just want to note something specific that we have coming up this summer, something called the Marriage Course. Uh, and, and it's for, you know, whether your marriage is, is great, uh, good, or in crisis, the marriage course could be a great next step for any marriage. Uh, this is a seven-week connection group uh, at no cost to you, thanks to a couple at our Carmel campus, Jim and Susan Goldman. The Goldmans have taken something like over 40 couples through this course over the past uh, years and have some great success stories uh, because of it. And uh, one of the things uh, about this course uh, that you need to know is that it's great because uh, if you're worried at all about sharing with others. You don't have to sit in front of a group and share your marriage junk, all right, with a bunch of other people. Uh, There's a brief teaching time, but uh, as a group, but when the discussion time comes, you break off into their home with just your spouse and you have that time together. Uh, The marriage course is going to happen for seven Thursday nights starting June the 23rd through August the 7th, again at the Goldman's home in Westfield. And because it's at their home, uh, please hear this, we're limiting it to 12 couples, all right? And so it's first come, first served. You need to know there won't be childcare, all right? So you're on your own for that. Uh, But because it's limited space, I want to ask you to check your schedule and be willing to commit to it, all right, before uh, you sign up for the course. And you can check it out on our website. Uh, or through the app, but consider making an investment like this or in something else for the sake of your marriage. Again, it doesn't matter what season you're in. I don't think it's anything that you'll regret. Let me, let me say one more thing about this mutual submission here that Paul's talking about. Again, back in verse 21, he says, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, here's the thing about this passage. This passage And the verses that follow assume that the husband and wife, both as individuals, are in committed and growing relationships with Jesus. See, here's the thing, and some of you know this too well. You can't do this, or you're going to greatly struggle at submission if you're not following the one who modeled submission for us. And so I just want to ask you today, are you in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ right now? Um, are you becoming increasingly dependent on him each day? It's, it's like the song that we finished up that, that worship set with just a moment ago, be thou my vision, God. You know, God, be my everything. Is he that everything for you? Is he the first delight in your life? He is the only one that will truly and completely satisfy him. And so maybe you need to ask yourself this morning, am I, am I following him? Am I really following Jesus right now and the difference that that can make? And so remember the vows you made. Uh, Great marriages are those marriages where there's mutual submission. The last thing is this, uh, it's prayer. 
And uh, you'll probably notice that for each of these first three weeks, we've always landed on prayer. Great marriages are born out of marriages where husband and wife pray, pray on their own, and pray together. And so, ladies, do you have a problem with your husband today? I want to challenge you to quit complaining about it, quit nagging him, quit telling your friends about it, but really ask yourself, am I going to the Lord with this? Is this something that I'm committed to praying about every single day? Fellas, are, are you having issues with your wife, challenges with your wife in your home? Quit, quit telling your buddies about it. Quit giving your wife the cold shoulder, but take your concerns and your worries to God every single day. Pray for her. Pray earnestly for her. Go before God every day and invite him into these concerns and put these cares on him. And no matter who you are, ask God to open your heart to see what's wrong or missing in your life right now. Ask him to help you see what needs to change in you so that your marriage can be stronger. Ask him to help you see your husband or your wife as God sees them. And then pray and ask him to give you strength, to give you humility, that you can practice submission. Because here's what I find. It's hard to argue with someone you've been praying for. And if you're praying and really making room for God to work in your marriage, you're going to be amazed at how God's going to open your eyes and give you a new perspective, how he's going to give you peace and patience. So keep praying and be amazed by a God who changes hearts and lives and by a God who rescues marriages and revives them. And I know I'm not going to say that it's going to be easy and it doesn't mean that it won't take some time, but God is capable of working a miracle in your marriage. He can still do that work for you. And if you're not married right now, I want to challenge you to start praying for the one that you will be married to one day, whether you've got a date or not. But pray that that person, that he or she would be a person of godly character. Pray that God would work in your life to work out these things in you. Uh, If you're married right now, if possible, pray with your spouse. Uh, Practice doing these things. There's nothing more powerful than a couple that's praying together. And so pray for your marriage. Pray for each other. Pray for your children. See, prayer brings Christ to the center. And that's where he intends to be and where he needs to be in our marriages. And it aligns our hearts and it aligns our marriage with him. Song of Songs 3, uh, 6 through 11, is a story about a shepherd king coming for his beautiful virgin bride. And he comes with armies and he's wearing a crown on his head and it's a magnificent scene for sure but it's nothing compared to the wedding processional that we anticipate, the one that's described in Revelation 19, where our king, Jesus, the great shepherd king, the one who submitted to the will of his father, the great one, the one who gave up his life on the cross, returns for his bride, returns for his church, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus today. Will you bow your heads with me? And Father, we, we understand this morning. We want to believe this morning. We ask you would give us the faith to see this morning that you've, well, you've been resurrecting lives ever since that day that you resurrected Jesus from the dead. And uh, you're resurrecting not only lives, but you're resurrecting marriages too and hopes. And we pray that for today, God, that you would give us the hope and the faith to believe in any and all things that you can and you will resurrect lives. And we know there are some husbands that their lives need to be resurrected and some wives. And uh, Father, we know there's some marriages right now that need resurrecting, that need hope again. And so would you encourage us? Would you give us greater faith and dependence in you as we go from here today? And uh, for all of us, you know, just even picture right now, Jesus coming to us as Solomon was coming to his bride, coming to our aid, coming to our help. Uh, He is the one that we love. Lord, we thank you for him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Hey, we want you to know that we'll be up front afterwards. If you need somebody to talk or pray with this morning as you go, uh, feel free to come forward to take advantage of that. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about that honeymoon. We're going to talk about the importance of sexual intimacy in marriage. And so uh, we'd love to see you back for that. Have a great week.